And please open your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 8. We'll be concluding this particular chapter today. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, or rather 35 through 39. We are primary text. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39. It's brilliant to see the providence of God in that we have selected and laid out a series of messages and texts months ago, and yet today we find ourselves in a text that could not be more relevant to our particular moment in time, moment in history. And so even the fact that we are opening up Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, ought to draw our hearts to worship and magnify God for his providential power in all things. Um, even to us. Paul began, if you remember, this portion of Romans chapter 8, and will begin this particular um, passage with a simple question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a part of a series of questions, if you remember, that we've been looking at. Um, Paul even seems to repeat himself with all these different questions, but really he's asking three main questions. He first asks, what shall we say of all of these things, reflecting back on all of chapter 8? Um, our adoption into the family of God, our future, future glory in Christ, life in the Spirit. Then he asks, what, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So who has anything to say about that? Who could say anything about that that would change that reality? Uh, meaning that no one can uh, condemn those whom God alone justifies. And lastly, which we'll look at today, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice this question begins. The first question is about God. What should we say about all these things that God is and all that God has done? And the second is about sort of external opposition. Who can bring condemnation against those whom God has justified? And today, Paul now zooms into the human heart, brings an internal opposition, if you will. Say, who can separate us from the love of God? After all, love is an affection. It's an understanding of our foundation within a particular relationship. So Paul moves from God to the external threats of the gospel, to the internal war that is going on within us. We might even say that the whole chapter then is summarized in this particular passage that we are looking at today, ending with this emphasis on divine love, which is incredibly fitting. And essentially, what Romans Romans chapter 8 teaches us is that God loves us and nothing can separate us from that reality. In other words, in Christ, my sister and my brother, We are secure. We are secure in him. And I don't know about you, but I need some security today. I need to be settled into something that endures beyond the whims of a megalomaniac across an ocean. Are you with me? I I, I need some security that no matter what threatens my brothers and sisters in Ukraine or what threatens them, that they would know a hope and a security. And this is what I believe God's word does for us today. That's what I want to talk about today. And in order to embrace this truth, I'd like to talk about two different things. The the internal oppositions or opposition of divine love and the security of divine love. So first we'll look at the internal opposition of divine love and then we'll look to the security of divine love. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, and let it alone without any exegesis, exposition, or proclamation minister to your soul today. Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the very words of God. And we say thanks be to God. Pray with me and then we'll consider the internal opposition and the security we have in divine love. Father, it's in moments like these that we realize cheap imitations of truth and hope have nothing to say in the face of real threats. So what we need right now is what you offer, lasting, real, transformative, and enduring hope and security, all of which we find in your love. So help me, help my friends, my brothers and sisters to learn today what it is to abide in your love, to find security in your love, to find hope in your love, and to trust how good and powerful and lasting your love is. I want to be available to you to that end, so use my heart, my mind, my entire body and being now to minister to your people for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about love in our current cultural moment, we've got to be really clear about what we're talking about. It's important to keep in mind when we say love, what are we talking about? After all, few things are more human than love, yet few things are more confusing to human beings than love. Are you with me? Few things are more human than the experience of love, yet you ask anyone to define it from a scholar to a two-year-old. And they're like, I don't know, but it's important. It's important. I don't know what this is. To tell someone that you love them is to express an intimate kind of emotion, but love is more than feelings. Love is about making a promise and setting the terms of a relationship. In 2014, New York Times columnist David Brooks was sharing about the legacy of a woman named Dorothy Day. And in her life and work, Day explained that love is an action which decenters, humbles, and sanctifies us. Love, in other words, is not about us. It's about the other. And yet it has an effect on us, doesn't it? It humbles us and gives us a desire to become the fullest expression of wisdom and grace and honor that we possibly can be. Brooks has gone on to explain that love is the center or epicenter of a kind of moral vocabulary that we need to have as human beings. It's a kind of language that I think our friends and our neighbors and world are trying to speak yet without training, yet without appropriate training. You see, what you and I find when we open the Bible is what I believe everyone is really looking for at the end of the day. We find love, and we find a way of understanding love through the lens of a story. In fact, the scriptures, in the scriptures we capture a vision and an understanding of love which is well beyond feelings, and it's not limited to some sort of existential experience. What do I mean by that? 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? John says, because God is love. As Christians, our claim is not simply that we have experienced the warm fuzzies or feelings of having been loved by someone like God or even have loved for someone like God. As Christians, hear this, we've met love. 
We've been embraced by love's embrace. We have been graced by love's presence. We've been transformed by love's power. We have a relationship with love. That's what John is getting at. God is love. Now, let's be clear. Saying that God is love does not also say or equal that love is God. Experiences of love are not the substance of joy, and feelings of love are not to be central to our life. So love is not God, but God is love. And he doesn't just have feelings for you. Hear this. He doesn't just do loving things for you. God defines and embodies love and has a relationship with you. That is fundamentally different than every other worldview that the world has ever come up with. We actually have a relationship with love. When we meet God, we come face to face with love. When we are adopted into the family of God, we become family members with love. When we are redeemed by God, we now become ambassadors of love. Are you with me in this? This is the understanding then, with all of this in mind, with our sort of our biblical narrative and and spiritual imagination queued up with this. This is how we come to Romans chapter 8. With this understanding, it's a part of our Christian imagination that we've been exploring and building and talking about these past number of months our understanding of how we see the world that God has created and how he has placed us within it. So when Paul asks in Romans 8 verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's not talking about who can take away the warm fuzzies, right? He's not talking about who can take away the feeling of love. He's not even talking about who can take away the experience of love. He's asking who can separate us from God himself? Because he is love. Now, of course we know. We've been acquainted with this love through the book of Romans. The answer is so obvious. So let's not bury the lead. The answer is no one and nothing. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No one and nothing can separate you from God. Maybe that's all you need today. That's cool. It's a short sermon. It's fine. I got more to say, but maybe you can tune out the rest of the time. No one and nothing can separate you from the love of God of God. That's the point of Romans chapter 8. But I'd like to suggest to you, it's also the point of the entire Bible. Isaiah 43 verse 1 through 4 says this, just let this truth wash over you as God speaks to his people. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he formed you, O Israel. Now he quotes God, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as ransom, as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. This is the one place in the Bible where God is quoted as looking at his people and saying, I love you. We know much of the scriptures of God's love for us. This is the one place where he actually outright clearly says, I love you. There's emotion in that. There's intimacy. There's action. There's passion. There's a promise But more than that, there's a person. God is love. God is alleging himself to his people, not actions and behavior for them, not feelings for them. He's saying, I'm with you. 
you're going to get through the water because I'm going to walk through it with you. You're going to get through the fire because I'm going to be in it with you. You're going to make it to the other side because I love you. And no one and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing separates God from his people. So, if the question has such an obvious answer, then why does Paul even ask? Or don't you hate when someone asks a question with such an obvious answer? It seems patronizing. It seems passive-aggressive or snarky or belittling, right? This is usually when we're trying to prove a point in an argument. Well, I don't know. What do you think, right? This sort of like attitude towards somebody asking a really obvious or a question with a really obvious answer. But there's a really important purpose why Paul asks a question with an obvious answer. Let's think about it. Why do thoughtful parents tell their children, I love you all the time? Why do I tell my children I love you and I'm proud of you as often as I possibly can? Why do we tell our beloveds that we love them all the time? Why do we constantly remind people who we love that we do indeed love them? Because they forget. Because we forget. Actually, I think even more precisely, I think daily there are internal oppositions which threaten the concept of love and our recollection of it and our trust of someone's love. In fact, maybe even the way that we're watching someone behave or think or act, we go, do they really love me? Or maybe something you've done. Will they still love me if they know this? If this comes to light? If, if what's true actually is known? See, we daily tell ourselves stories, don't we, church? And believe lies and experience feelings which suggest that love may be in doubt. If we do this with each other, how much more with the Lord? See, as moms and dads, we know this, so we say, I love you. As lovers, we know this, so we say, I love you. As family, we, we know this, so we say, I love you. As church members, we know this, so we should say, I love you. And God, he knows this too. And so he says, no one and nothing can ever separate you from my love. He asks a question with an obvious answer because we are so quick to forget. The question and answer is a reminder. See, Paul is asking this question not because the answer is ever in doubt. That's really important but rather because we are regularly riddled with doubt, aren't we? He's, he's, not, he's not making sure that the truth is still there. He's making sure that we understand it, that we see it, that we trust it, that we believe it. See, we doubt that God actually loves us. I know I do. We doubt that the way that we're even worthy of his love, or we doubt that his love is actually enough for us or for whatever we might be facing. See, within the human heart, there's this constant internal opposition to divine love. So Paul asks and answers a very obvious question to give us security and confidence that God's love is indeed sure. In fact, even the way Paul answers his question sort of swells and builds and crescendos with prophetic assurance. Hear it again, Romans 8, verse 35 through 39. Sense how it builds, how much he is overwhelming us in this case. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword. As it is written, for, we, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a passage we ought to put on repeat, like a good song we play all the time. See, Paul lists 17 different opponents to divine love. 
in this passage. And I do think his focus is internal rather than external because, again, he's talking about love. He's talking about our relationship with love, our standing in love, our adoption as loved and beloved sons and daughters of God. He's not talking anymore about charges or accusations that come from outside against God's elect. He's talking about the charges that come from our heart, the condemnation that comes from within our own mind. He's talking about the war that happens within us as the world is swirling out of control around us. After all, isn't it true when you and I face tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or when we read the headlines like we've been reading not only this past week, but throughout the past two years, as Christians, these are not mere physical or experiential problems, right? This isn't just about what's happening with my emotions. If I believe that the God of the universe who has covenanted with me, that he'll protect me, that he cares for me, that, that he's about my good, then all of these experiences bear some kind of statement in mind within my soul. They potentially cause me to question the goodness of God, his power, and especially his love. Each of these cause us to think and feel and believe that we are far from his love. And if love is merely a feeling, then I question it when my feelings change, right? If, if I thought that, that God loves me because I was singing on tune to that song on Sunday, and man, that was the experience of love I was looking for, what am I going to do Monday when I go, you know, I wonder if my brothers and sisters are going to love me if they know what I really did today, what I really believe, what I really think, what I'm really going through. Are they really going to accept me? Church, love is more than a feeling. It is more than an experience of some sort of existential bliss. It's a person. Love is a person. God is love. And that's what Paul is addressing, that internal conflict and opposition that goes on. So Paul teaches us that the love of God has been so alleged to us in Christ that we have been so united with him in death and resurrection that all such thoughts and feelings and beliefs of separation are utterly proven false. Amidst and through all this opposition, in other words, God is near, love is close, he is with you. He's gone nowhere. He's with you. This is what three Hebrew boys learned when they were thrown into a furnace to be burned. It's a story that I think ought to take up considerable bandwidth in our spiritual imaginations. When these three boys stood in the fire, Daniel records the subsequent moments this way in Daniel chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of like of the gods. Who is like a son of the gods? Who is that? Who is that fourth Hebrew boy standing in the fire with them? Who is the one who is close despite tribulation and distress and danger? It's God himself. The one whose love is not separated from his people despite the fiery furnace, despite opposition. God is near. God is close. Love is right there. Christ is in the fire with them. The scriptures tell us they didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. Can't you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wondering where is God when we're about to get thrown into a fiery furnace? The scriptures tell us he got into the fire with them. See, love is not that you will never go into the fire and feel the heat. Love is that God will be with you in the middle of it. 
On Wednesday, as Russian forces invaded his country, Ukrainian pastor Vestal Ostry shared with his Facebook community this, the first thing a man doubts is that God is not good and faithful, but God is good and faithful. This is our brother. This is a man in the middle of one of the most unthinkable circumstances he and his countrymen could have possibly imagined, his brothers and sisters could have possibly fathomed. They're in the fiery furnace. The first thing the internal war starts to question is the goodness and faithfulness and love of God. And here he is speaking and preaching back to that opposition the truth of who God is. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can put distance between the Lord and his people. That's the internal opposition to divine love. Yes, these 17 things, but Paul, you know, he could have listed more, right? He could have listed all kinds of things. Could your boss's view of you, can that separate you from the love of God? From your kid's disobedience streak, can that separate you from the love of God? From your lack of romantic love, can that separate you from the love of God? Can the challenges we face in COVID, can that separate you from the love of God? Can, can war separate you from the love? Of, we could have put anything there. And the answer is always the same. No one and nothing can separate you from the love of God. So Paul asks and answers a very obvious question. This is the internal opposition going on. Because really, all 17 or countless things could be boiled down to one thing. What is the internal opposition of divine love? That we doubt his love is real that we doubt his love is persistent, that we doubt his love in general. And perhaps there's, if we really like get down to it, perhaps there's nothing we doubt and, and get bound up in more than anything else, is believing that actually, completely, and unconditionally that God just loves you. Hard stop. I've literally been in counseling for the past month to try to just settle in that. So I'm, I'm with you in this. I just, I'm like, Lord, of course you love me, but i got to, like, show that I'm, like, deserving of that love, right? I've, I've got to demonstrate that I'm operating out of this disposition of love. And he's like, nah, I love you. Abide in it. Rest in that. Settle your soul in that. Build your life in that. Paul asks and answers a very obvious question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing and we would do well to ask and answer that very obvious question every single day and to help each other answer it too. In fact, like let's really bring it down to a practical sense. Whenever a friend calls you, says they're going through something, ask them, are you trusting in the love of God right now? That should come up in our groups all the time. When there's conflict at work, are you really settled? In, do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that he, not, not as a hard stop to dismiss a real problem, but that's the episode, that's where we start. We start with our view of the love of God and then we operate out of that center. It's because Paul doesn't stop there. That's the internal opposition to divine love. So what's the security? How can Paul be so sure these internal conflicts don't lead to loss or separation with God? After all, if love is a relationship and a covenant, can't these be broken if and when we don't live up to our end of the bargain, our end of the relationship? Or what if we fall out of love with God? This is something a lot of people in this movement of deconstruction of faith are even talking about, about what if we fall out of love with God? Or how do we learn to trust his love? How do we build our lives within the walls of the security of God's divine affection for us? I think the security of divine love is explained in verse 37. Look at it with me. Paul again says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
So based on verse 37, the security of divine love is actually twofold. The first is that divine love doesn't just get us through these internal oppositions and onto the other side. Notice, we conquer them. We conquer them. In other words, God's love is not a mere defense mechanism which remains unchanged and endures past these threats. Divine love conquers these oppositions of doubt. In fact, the strategy of divine love, if we're to use sort of militaristic language in the conflict against internal opposition, is to actually change us, to transform us. Did you notice, Paul doesn't say, you will conquer these things. What does he say? You actually become conquerors. It's, it's a word of being. What's that mean? It means that divine love actually changes us. It transforms us. We say this even in premarital counseling, that when you covenant with someone, you are changed on the spot about who you now are before Christ, before the world, to become what? One. You are transformed through that covenant of love. The same is true, in fact, exponentially true with God. See, even though circumstances may change and may not change, even though we may still be naked or still be in danger or still face the sword or still face death, though we do not know who will rule over us or what things to come will happen through all of these things, even though all of these things may remain unchanged, we actually change. We are transformed. The security of divine love is that divine love changes us. It makes us something we were not before. I think we're protected through that transformation. It's what led 19th century Episcopal Bishop Philip Brooks to say, do not pray for easy lives. Oh, God help us. Pray to be stronger people. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work will be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. See, divine love is the miracle that makes us equal to whatever task. In fact, it makes us conquerors over whatever task the Lord may allow to be laid before us. You see, when we come face to face with love in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we don't just walk away from that and say, that was a nice experience of a feeling of love. We are changed by that. If the God of the universe really sent his son to die in your place and for your sins and rise in victory over Satan's sin and death, and then he actually wants to have a relationship with you. Don't you think something about you would change in meeting that kind of love face to face? And it does. There is therefore, you are therefore now a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You're changed. You were once bound up in death and sin. Now you're bound up in life and righteousness. You're changed. That's what Paul has been getting at this entire time. We become like Christ. Remember verse 29 when he explained that we've been predestined not just to one day fly away into heaven. What? To be conformed to the image of God's Son. We've been predestined to become more like Christ. When we meet love, we become like love. We become like Christ. He is a conqueror. And in fact, his conquering comes not by removing the problem or removing the obstacle, but by enduring it and conquering it, right? Jesus does not conquer sin and death by dismissing sin and death. He, he conquers sin and death by bearing the wrath of God on the cross, dying in our place and for our sins, right? So therefore, we as people who become like Christ will endure hardship. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says, but fear not why, because I've already overcome the world. I've already overcome it. I've already conquered it, and you're going to become a conqueror like me. 
See, Jesus Christ demonstrates his love by closing the gap caused by sin and foolishness and death. He takes our place, rises from the dead, and establishes this kind of love which cannot be conquered by the things of this world. Cannot be conquered even by death itself. The word conquer belongs to a word group denotes victory and superiority. Christ was victor on the cross. He was superior to the opposition of death and the powers of this world. Therefore, in Christ, we too become victors superior to the afflictions we face, not avoidant of those things, but superior and empowered and enabled to overcome them. Or as he explained to the church in Corinth in the first century, who faced all kinds of hostility, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, in Christ, we walk in this procession of victory. We are conquerors, even though it is costly. That's the first aspect of divine love's security. The opposition of doubt is conquered, I think, through personal transformation of who you and I have become. Practically speaking, when the lie of distance and doubt creep in into our spirit, we when we're tempted to wonder, when your brother or sister is tempted to wonder if God is close, if love is near, we're meant to remember the evidence of God's love is demonstrated right within our personhood, within our personal transformation. See, you used to be proud, now you're humble, right? You used to be arrogant, and now there's this kind of spirit of generosity about you. You used to hustle for your holiness, now you rest in Christ. You used to be quick to anger, and now you're slower to anger, right? <laughs> you may not be quite patient yet, but you're slower to anger. See, I don't know if I could ever say that I'm a humble man, but by God's grace, I can say I'm not as arrogant as I was about 10 years ago. If we use that as a cost, but like, yeah. You used to think only about money, and now you give it away with joy. So we're actually supposed to look at the transformative work of God's grace in one another's life, and that's meant to build within us a security and a stability of knowing God has not gone anywhere. He's with us. No matter how great or small, we rejoice in those things. And, and can I just suggest to you, you can't see those by yourself. You're, you and I are actually very bad self-assessors. We need community. This is why there's constant communal language as it comes to transformation of God's Spirit. God's Spirit did not fall on a single person or pastor. God's Spirit fell on the church in Acts chapter 2. Therefore, we need one another to discern how the Spirit is at work among us, and it's meant to build us confidence and security. God is definitely with us. His hand is upon our church family. The second aspect of divine love is the inception of love, where, where it begins, the genesis of it, if you will. Look again at verse 37. Notice, through him who loved us, you, the, the power to change, in other words, and the power to endure does not come because you've got great love, right? That you have this love that for, for yourself and for others that you're going to, we're going to blast through it with love, right? You remember like, like the Care Bears back in the day? I don't know where this is coming from, but this is here. You remember how they used to like beat problems? They'd all just stare at it, right? They do the Care Bear what? Stare. And they'd look at a bad problem and they would just say, get back, you evil problem. They got all of this love. Stuff would shoot out from their chest, right? You remember this? It's a worldly kind of view of staring at our problems. We're indoctrinated as young children. Some of y'all don't even know what the Care Bears are. Talk to a millennial after church today and you will discover the greatest cartoon ever. No, that's not true. That's... We don't do that. What do we do? We don't, we don't look to our love and our ability. We look to the love of our Heavenly Father. John continues his thought that we looked at earlier from 1 John chapter 4. 
He says this in verse 16 and 19 in that chapter. So, we have come to know and to believe the love of God that, love, that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this is love perfect. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Hear this. We love because he first loved us. That's the power. That's the security. That's the inception of love. The language of abiding is incredibly important, I think, for our spiritual vocabulary. We abide where we are safe. We remain where we feel security. If you don't feel secure, you can't relax. You, you, can't, you can't rest your soul, let alone your feet. You can't do anything. So the one who abides in God is the one who has found safety in his presence, in his arms, which leads John to say that you can have confidence when? On the day of judgment. Church, only love does that. Only love from someone else can give you confidence that on the day you meet your maker, you can have confidence and peace because you know that the judge before you is also love. This is why he says perfect love drives out fear. Can I suggest to you that many of us have dabbled with a lot of different fears the past couple of years in different ways? Everywhere we look on the political, medical, social spectrum, there is fear. And regretfully, the church has participated in that fear, all the while neglecting 1 John chapter 4. We are to be a people who daily drive out and see fear driven away, not because we've got it together or we have all of the answers, but because we know about love. We know who love is, and we know what love is able to do. We're freed to abide and love in return. And that's where the inception of divine love is so critical for us to understand. God's love for us has been initiated towards us, and it's what establishes our relationship with God, which may sound like his love sort of betrays our agency or our will, but it's actually really good news. There is an eternal security, an eternity of security in a love which does not ask for your permission. It doesn't ask for your permission. It comes by his providence, by his election. A love which is not activated by your performance or by your pedigree. You see, you can't break a bond you didn't initiate. In other words, the terms of the divine covenant were set and ratified by God's love for us, not our love for him or our trust even in his love. We only know what love is, and we've only been bound up in this relationship because God loved us first. Therefore, God's love holds the covenant together. God's love is the security of our relationship. God's love makes us conquerors. It's God's love that initiated creation. It's God's love that led the Son to the cross. It's God's love that initiated you at conversion. So we see this cosmically, we see this redemptively, we see this personally. God is the one who initiates. So where's our security? Perhaps no verse better summarizes the security we have in divine love than Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, 
in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, even when we were dead. When we did not love, nor could we love, God loved us first when we were at our worst. This is our security. You have not been loved because of you. You have been loved because of God. Therefore, there is nothing you could do nor nothing you could fail to do that would ever separate you from a love you did not initiate, from a love that is not contingent upon you, from a love that is not predicated on your performance or pedigree, but merely completely and fully based on his love. It's quite maddening and beautiful how circular God's love is, isn't it? God loves because God loves. That's it. You don't actually enter in. I don't actually enter in anywhere in there, right? Makes us question the way that maybe we love each other, the way that we view love in general. This is why we fear love. This is why we don't trust God's love is because we're putting a human form of love on God's love that actually has nothing to do with his love. God loves you because of God. See, the internal opposition of divine love is doubting God's love in all of the myriad of ways that we do it. The security of divine love is that we were made conquerors because God loved us first. So church, here's the question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing. This may be an obvious answer, but it's not a simple one. It's filled and riddled with all kinds of eternal implications. So ask and answer this obvious question every day so that no matter the opposition within us, that we might find assurance in God's closeness, God's persistence, God's safety, and God's love. So, Heavenly Father, help us to be a people who abide. Help us to be a people who trust. Help us be a people who center our lives on an affection that we did not initiate. On you, because you are love. And we pray that from this disposition of, of experiencing and knowing and trusting your love, that we might be a people who love well. Our friends, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, our spouses, our children. Help us to be a people, and the scripture said we're supposed to be known by this. We're supposed to be known by love because you are the God who is love. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.